Welcome to Fostering Solutions, a podcast that uplifts people and enterprises making positive impact in communities around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Foster. Well, my guest today is Errol Randall. Errol, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful, Dr. Foster. How are you? Good, good, good. Thanks for coming on Fostering Solutions. Um, you've, I've known you now. It's been, gosh, maybe ten years. I can't yes, even. Yes, time, time is, is just zooming by. It is back in my kisser days, and then continued to work with you in my current position. But um, tell the audience about yourself. You're very well known in our community. But go ahead and tell the audience about yourself. Who is Errol Randall? Thank you, Dr. Foster. And before I start, may I say? It's a it's an honor for me to be here on your podcast and and I've seen your lineups before and and I'm not sure if I'm worthy but but uh, I'm a, a diverse <laughs> mix. <laughs> that's right, that's right. It's a diverse mix, but I'm excited to be here to, to kind of a little tell my story and talk about what I'm doing and and you know some of the things that have worked um, in my line of business. But I am Errol Randall, um, born and raised in in Indiana. So I'm a, I'm a transplant to West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so people ask me all the time, how did you get to West Virginia? And I was stationed in Oklahoma, Enid, Oklahoma, at a pilot training base mm-hmm. with another gentleman who is a retired police officer as well from here in Charleston uh, by the name of George Henderson. Mm-hmm. So we were police officers in the Air Force, and, and we both had dreams of getting out and to getting into uh, law enforcement. So he had an extra application and he said, man, it would be cool if we could work together. So he handed me the application from out of his window into mine. And this was a Wednesday. I filled out the application, um, had to have it to Charleston by Friday. So I next day mailed it on Thursday, called on Friday. They said they had received it. And, um, and then we came out and tested. And so it was one of the best moves I could have ever made. Um, 25 years later, I retired from Charleston Police Department, um, having served uh, a, a wonderful police department in a, in a great city. And um, so, so born and raised in Indiana, came to Charleston after the Air Force, um, served 25 years. I'm the father of, of the light of my life, who is Kennedy Randall, who's the 16-year-old uh, Hurricane High School student cheerleader I must say because she's gonna watch this <laughs> and and um, and so recently retired in 2019 currently work for the state of West Virginia as the um, community outreach officer for the Department of Military Affairs and Public Safety as well as I work also with Department of Education Jobs and Hope West Virginia so in okay. short real quick story real quick that was that was my, my bio okay. So when you think about your career, it, it's it, you, you haven't had that many, <laughs> that many um, jobs, but what was your career journey like? Were there obstacles you had to overcome? What was that? Because 25 years, you know, you, you, I think you're still relatively, you know, relatively young to be talking about retire, but, you know, you're still working. But what has that journey been like for you in, in your career from the Air Force you know, um, to uh, being with the police department, obstacles or any, what would you like to share about that journey? 
Sure. Of course, there were always obstacles. You know, we're in a being a police officer is a very hard career field, um, but it was one that was always a dream for me. Um, and you'll hear a lot of police officers say, you know, it was a calling for me. And it was it was truly a calling for me. I knew ever since second grade that I was going to be a police officer. Okay. And a matter of fact, what spurred that was we were having career day at Francis Locum Elementary School. And in through that door uh, into my classroom came my father, who is a retired police officer, he and his partner. And when he walked through that door, Dr. Foster, it was like a scene from a movie. It was like <laughs> smoke came through the door and, and then he walked through the smoke and boom, there he was, my superhero. Mm -hmm. But um, the pride that I had in knowing what he represented was something that I aspired um, mm -hmm. to, to be involved in. And so I carried myself accordingly because, um, you know, service was something that was taught early to me in my, in my life, um, how honorable it is to serve. And so I was able to watch my dad, but not just my dad, but my brother, mm -hmm. my sister's husband, uncles. And so not A lot just of my cops. Okay. Yeah. So we have actually, we just passed the torch to the third generation of police officers in, in the Randall family. And, uh, and then also, um, you know, the Air Force, the Air Force was also that was something that was part of our family legacy. But, mm -hmm. but once I made that leap into law enforcement, made a decision to go ahead and serve on the civilian side, um, I knew what I was getting into. Um, I knew, but I didn't know. Um, I knew that it was going to be challenging, but I felt that I had a good head start, which I did. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just amazing to me to watch my dad interact with people. Didn't know, matter who they were, where they were from, what their economic status was, what the color of their skin was. He had an innate ability to be able to communicate at a high level. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I wanted. That's what I aspired to, to do and what's the, what I aspired to be. And, and so once I got started, um, um, you know, I, that was, that was really a, a, a something that I really built upon. So as I went through my career, um, I served the first two years of my career in the patrol division where I, those first two years are very important for you to learn as much as possible, um, learn the in, ins and outs, learn the rules, learn um, the laws um, and how to, you know, interact with folks. But I had some great training officers and, but there were challenges. There were challenges. Um, you know, um, there's a, not a lot of diversity here in West Virginia. And being a, a one of very few black police officers, you know, there was a pressure that I think that was a little different. Um, you know, he had pressure from folks, the inside or pressure from, um, from, from you both. as a as a as a, man, a, a black man in, or pressure from the outside. All the above. All um, of the above. OK. All the above. Um, as one of very few black officers, you always felt as though you were under a microscope. And that's the way I carried myself accordingly because I always wanna make sure I carried myself in a manner that didn't affect the next black officer coming after me from having a chance at different opportunities within. And so I always was very conscious of that, not to say that it was a challenge, but it was something I was very conscious about. Um, and then there were times that, uh, you know, um, there were, and I, this is a very minute, small number 
that I, I did receive flack from some folks in the black community because of my role. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you know, that I knew that was going to be part of it because I watched my dad, I had that example ahead of me. So I, I knew how to navigate that within. And so that didn't become an issue at, at either. Mm-hmm. So, so there were challenges, but, but the rewards truly outweigh um, what the challenges were. You know, that feeling that you get from truly helping someone navigate a difficult situation is something you can't put money on. Right, right, right. So um, you mentioned your, your, your family history. Um, did you know you were, you were going to, is 25 years a typical length of, um, of a, of a cop career or is it, it's like, did you know going in at 25 years, I'm done, you know, is that, was that a plan or did it like, what, what prompted you to say, okay, this is it. Was there a moment like that? Great question. Um, I will say on the front end, I started off at, at age of uh, 24. And I think that was pretty the, young. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a great age to start any, and, and actually it's, it's, it's um, to me, it's still wild in my mind that someone can become a police officer at the age of 18. Wow. Um, I still think it's too young. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have enough life experience and, and to be able to navigate different, you know, um, situations that you're going to encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I started at that age and had the military behind me again, I was a little more mature at that age. Um, and so um, I think that would help, help, help me early on to be able to navigate. But as I went through my career, um, I think what really kept me excited about my job were the opportunities within. Mm-hmm. So again, I talked about having served two years in patrol division. My next assignment, I was in the street crimes unit. So as a young, young man, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was able to, to work the undercover role. And, 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 um, mm-hmm. and so it was just a different world. Um, working in, in, in uniform and working in plain clothes, you see just totally, totally different world. Wow. Wow. Yes. So that kept me motivated, but I also began to learn and, and really, you know, wanted to dig deeper as far as why people did what they did mm. or why they made the decisions they made, what, what outside influences were there that made those that, that influenced them in making certain decisions and, how could I do, how could I serve better? How could I reach people and be effective? Um, so many of these questions started to churn in my head and, 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 and you know, I would, those are the challenges we had because as society moved at a very, very fast pace. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I guess to, towards the latter part of your, your career, you, um, did a lot of training of police officers. So can you think of a session that really that was most memorable and, and really stood out for you among all the ones that you did? It's like, is there a particular series or a particular session, a particular class that you did that really stood out? And you know, why did it stand out and how impactful do you think it was? Yes, yes. Um, you know, to, to backtrack just a bit, um, once I completed uh, my a tour with the street crimes unit, 
I went to the FBI gang task force and then I was assigned to the chief's office by uh, uh, retired chief Brent Webster. Mm -hmm. So we had a long 10 years together in which I worked directly for him. And my role was that of the strategic planning officer Mm -hmm. where I was to develop initiatives and strategies to help, you know, promote police community relations. Mm -hmm. So in that we were introduced to a class called emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. and man, oh man, that really sparked my interest. I mean, that, that once I saw and started to do a little homework about as far as what emotional intelligence was and, you know, it's, it's something that is, is more well known in the corporate mm-hmm. um, America mm-hmm. because it helps businesses um, with their bottom dollar. Um, you know, they, they make more money if they're if they have high emotional intelligence. And it's all about, you know, being able to have good communications and relationships with others. Mm-hmm. So as I dug into that and I realized that there is an appraisal that uh, that 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 is out there that we could take to help us understand where we are in in terms of our own self-awareness, our self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. I was like, wow, that is what we need for law enforcement right now. Mm -hmm. So began to do a lot of research and we talked about kicking that off with Charleston PD, then I retired. But um, but, um, I then was, was, was hired by the state and one of the things I introduced with the state to the state was this notion of emotional intelligence. So it came up again. I was able to, with the help of, of Reverend Ryan English, mm-hmm. um, introduce this to the uh, Charleston Police Department. Um, and this was in, started in December of 2020. And um, we began, when I say we. Oh, so that's in the middle of, is that that's in the middle of COVID. Is yes, or actually, yes, it was. It was okay. Yes, and and uh, so you know, George Floyd happened. Everyone was in their emotions, including myself, and that was just the the what I needed to really get me over to him to really push me to get this this course of study out there. So we chose Charleston PD, um, and we uh, we taught a class. When I say we, it's Eddie Whitehead and myself. We taught a class called 21st Century Policing, Identifying Unconscious Biases and Unlocking Emotional Intelligence. And mm-hmm. it was a, it's a course that we developed ourselves, um, you know, based off of the last 25 years I've had with the Charleston Police Department, what I've learned on emotional intelligence and, and, and just how the Charleston Police Department operates. I know that because I was there. Right. And... So to go back to answer your question, that work there was probably the most meaningful class that that I've introduced as far as training, because we're already seeing dividends, positive dividends. And and first, it seems like it it affected you personally as well. Yes, yes. The the attendees, yeah. Yes, as a matter of fact, you know, I go back to day one um, when I was a Charleston police officer. This is a tool that I wish I had day, wow. number, one. day number one, because it, 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 it's not just about being nice, but it's, it's, it's about having appropriate outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to achieve. And so we did it with Charleston PD and the response from Charleston PD was off the chart. Um, these officers have really received it. And matter of fact, 
they be they really truly understood the divisiveness that that um, unconscious biases can cause, mm -hmm. what they are, how they operate in the subconscious level, and um, and when you look at our police crews and it says to protect and serve, it doesn't say we're going to protect and serve only those people who look like us or right. have the same economic status as of, of us. It's it's everybody, mm -hmm. and so unfortunately, these biases can prevent the level of effectiveness in which we serve. Wow. So we introduce that, but we also give them a tool to help them to overcome, which is mastering the emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so each officer that was with Charleston PD, PD received their own individualized appraisal. And then they began to work on their own um, ways of improving where they were deficient. Mm -hmm. And this is all about their own self-awareness. So that went over so well that we began teaching at the police academy as well. So now oh, we're teaching, yeah, we're at the police academy now. And since February of, of 2021, every officer that graduated, both either municipal or state police um, cadet that has graduated has been taught emotional intelligence and has their own individualized emotional intelligence appraisal. So so, this is so something now in, 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 you know, indoctrinated, it's a part of the system now. Yes. Yes. It's That's awesome. It's, it's awesome. part of the core curriculum. Mm -hmm. And, um, and matter of fact, um, we created a statewide initiative um, called the West Virginia law enforcement initiative project EQ, where our goal is to, is to get this in the hands of every police officer in the state of West Virginia. That's awesome. So that we kicked awesome. that off. It's almost like Charleston then would be like a pilot that then yes. grows statewide. That is, that is exactly what is happening now. Um, we're looking at statistics and you know how emotional intelligence is, 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 is uh, um, uh, uh, playing a role with, with the way that we serve. Mm -hmm. um, and again, um, without going into st statistics, um, we are seeing some trends in some areas such as use of force that are amazing. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. So the, the, the people who do, who wrote the, the book and, you know, developed the training, did they realize, did they think of police officers as an audience? Like, like, have you been in touch with them to let them know, hey, you know, our police department is actually using this. I wonder if they realize that. So here's the rest of the story. Okay. <laughs> because it, it has, we have, uh, we are in contact with the, the developers of the book that we mm -hmm. use and and um, and they have thought about it they've tried mm -hmm. but it's not it's not a a a it hasn't happened yet until now and so what? the state of West Virginia is leading the charge that's, in law enforcement that's great to hear emotional intelligence training that's and uh, so we're working directly with the company um, they have put major resources into it. Matter of fact, they hired a, 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 um, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Greg Campbell, mm -hmm. um, who uh, is now their vice president of law enforcement and government. Oh, look at that. Okay. Yes. And matter of fact, when he was doing his doctorate dissertation, it was on emotional intelligence and law enforcement. Okay. That's so, awesome. So we are we are hitting the ground running. Um, we're really very, very proud of our efforts here in West Virginia. Again, this is something we're proud of because of uh, 
we're leading the charge. Um, Absolutely. It's good that we're leading. I like we're when leading. Yeah. Yes. So we're excited and we're continuing to add different pieces to the puzzle. And mm -hmm. so things are coming together on, on, a, on a big scale. It's wonderful to hear. Um, another challenge that um, is, is being placed on police departments is really the whole um, mental health issue, the whole mental health challenge that we face as a nation. And police departments are being called upon to in include mental health professionals, whatever their counselors, therapists, whatever it is on their teams. Just so that, because I'm, I'm surprised that what I hear that, you know, cops are called for just because there's no one else to, to handle it. So how do you see these mental health professionals being incorporated um, into day-to-day -day -day operations of a police department? It seems, it seems it makes sense to me. I know there's a whole movement um, to really um, include uh, these professionals because a lot of the folks that you guys are called on, that you were called on, that, that you know, police officers are called upon, Lot of the, lots of the, the those situations are for people who have mental health issues. So how do you see you know this really fitting into day-to-day -day operations of a police department? Well, when when we say working with the police, um, I don't necessarily envision those professionals being sitting in the car. Okay, so with, it wouldn't be with, like sitting in the car going on a. No, a that's not the way I I see it, or the way I receive that. Mm -hmm. um, but I do see it as this, that perspective, I, I call that social intelligence, that, that perspective right there is a different piece of the puzzle that we need to be effective because who's going to be called in a situation where there may be a person that has a, a, a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. um, 99 out of hundred times is going to be the police. And for us to be able to have that piece of the puzzle or that perspective, be able to draw from is what's going to allow us to be effective. Um, so we have a beautiful thing called discretion. Mm -hmm. And our use of discretion is successful as we have different perspectives to draw from. So with that being said, I just think it's very important that police officers put a lot of time and effort in, into strategic planning for training. Um, you know, we I just talked about, you know, bringing emotional intelligence training in, but there are also, you know, social intelligence classes that we need to draw from to help us to be effective. There are classes right now, and it's funny you'd say, ask that question because there are classes right now that we are recommending during our training that help us become proficient at our understanding our own, mastering our own emotional intelligence, but also to help us just to become a well-rounded police officer, have that social intelligence to be able to draw from. And, and um, um, mental health awareness is one of those classes. Um, because again, our emotional intelligence is gonna put us in the mindset to help us understand in, in that whatever is, is in front of us, we truly understand what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, Having that social intelligence piece is gonna allow us to draw and bring another piece of the puzzle to draw from to, to really help diagnose that as well. And, and then again, hopefully have appropriate outcomes. So, and if I may, I wanna, I wanna say this, 
also in our class, there's an equation that we use. And because what we're trying to achieve in, in law enforcement now with that strategic planning for training is cultural competence. So emotional intelligence plus social intelligence for us helps to define our own cultural competence. So there are classes that, that need, that I think are basic classes that, that are needed, that are mandatory and that should be needed. And so we're looking at, you know, pro, uh, providing this, this blueprint to law enforcement, but classes such as, again, emotional intelligence, kinesics, that's the study of body language. Mm -hmm. so, so it's very important as we communicate with folks that, that we understand what their body language is reading. There was a study by the the by UCLA that said that 55% of what receive what is received while we communicate is through body language. 38% mm -hmm. um, is 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 how it's said, and then the remaining what seven percent is actually what is said. So mm -hmm. knowing that, so how important is kinesics? Again, it 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 overlaps with helping us to master our emotional intelligence, but also to help us become a well-rounded police officer. Um, fundamentals of drug addiction. Um, we're, we are the folks that are on a day-to-day -day basis are gonna run across folks that have issues with drug addiction. So we have to make sure that the, our police officers have these different types of training, again, to be able to draw from. Um, special needs awareness, mm -hmm. um, history of policing, race relations, um, diversity management. Um, you know, we there's there's a quote by Stephen Covey, and I've said this a million times, but it is one of my all-time favorite quotes. Are we busy or are we effective? And we want to be effective each and every time that we make contact with someone. It's a challenge, but we want to be effective. So, so you're saying it's important for officers to be um well-trained in, in a lot of these areas. And would there also be room to have a, whether it's a counselor, some, someone with a, a, um, a mental health related degree at working with the police officers? Because I, I, I'm, I'm sure whatever the, the trainings that you mentioned would be good, but having that professional who has spent four, six years studying that particular subject matter, to me, that would be more, you know, um, someone who, who would be able to more expertly handle certain situations. Do you agree or? Well, but I'll, I'll add something to that. Um, not just be well-versed in those, in that area, but also understand the culture of, of police mm, and, okay. and the culture of police departments so very important because it's a it's a different animal um, okay so you're saying hey you would have the mental health person but they they also have to be trained and and understand the, the culture of policing um right how we operate as a culture mm -hmm. um and and the truth is the 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 cult the, the the policing culture is one that's difficult to 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 get into and and to be able to influence um right. you know so so Yes, must be well versed in in the subject matter area, but as well as must understand the culture of policing and how you know and how our internal customer service um, and um, you know how we receive internal customer service because um, 
a lot of times police officers only receive from other police officers and that's not necessarily a good thing. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that you, um, you, you've really been impactful. Another area where I guess your community outreach, your community connections really started was through a special project called Project West Invest um, that has been very impactful on the west side of Charleston. Talk some about this particular initiative, the Project West Invest that you, I think you were the, you initiated it. Um, uh, and, and, yes. and, and you were one of the first participants. So talk about, talk some about Project West Invest. Project West Invest um, was der derived um, from a personal experience. Mm -hmm. um, and what it is, is um, the, the overall uh, merits of it were to have police officers move into challenged neighborhoods on the west side of Charleston. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I go back and talk about the, the you know, my own personal experience, um, prior to living in the house, that I live in now, which is a Project West Invest house, home. I actually lived in Orchard Manor. And for those folks that out there um, in Cyberland that don't know where Orchard Manor is, it's a um, government housing that uh, is actually on the west side of Charleston. And when I came on in 1994, was one of the most crime-ridden um, areas of town. Um, a matter of fact, you know, for lack of better words, I cut my teeth as a young police officer in Orchard Manor because of the shooting investigations, the open air drug markets and, and things like that. And it has such a reputation that if you were just to mention the word Orchard Manor or the woo, um, mm -hmm. the words that would come from folks' mouth were not positive. And so I had gone through a personal um, situation where I was going through a divorce and, and I ended up living in Orchard Manor for 10 years. But what I realized was when I moved into Orchard Manor, I had these, these things that were, these unconscious biases in there in my mind that, that I actually had to overcome. And this is just real talk such as, you know, um, that people in the government housing didn't work, want to work, uh, people that, that in government housing didn't like the police, um, people that lived in government housing um, didn't, didn't appreciate family. And over those 10 years, oh my gosh, those things were just blown out of the water. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to be a, uh, 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 one, of the fam one, of fam one of the family who actually lived in the Orchard Manor. I mean, yeah. because that's how the folks there um, brought me in as family. It just so happens I was a police officer. Mm -hmm. and, and so there were, there were days that I would come in, come home from work and there would be Christmas cards taped to my door and, 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 or the, the neighborhood kids would come and knock on my door and ask for my daughter to come out and play at the playground. And, <laughs> and you know, but then they treated her like a queen, but all those things are blown out of the water. And we, we created, or we actually not created, but we went back to those old school neighborhood norms where, where people wanted safety, people wanted to, to, to be able to walk at night and, and feel safe and have the perception of, of feeling safe and, and, and that they embrace families. And, and, and so all those old school norms that, that were just so prevalent at the end of my time there in Orchard Manor, we wanted to replicate. 
So we approached the Greater Kanawha Valley Foundation, along with the the Charleston Urban Renewal Authority, and 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 you all were were so gracious as as to give us the funding for police officers to be able to buy homes. So we were each. I was one of the first officers. Granted, I was giving a grant for fifty thousand dollars, twenty five from the Greater Kanawha Valley Foundation, twenty five from Cura. And I went to the 1500 block of 6th Avenue and I bought my home. Mm-hmm. And it was in a challenged neighborhood. Um, matter of fact, when I bought the home, it hadn't had running water for five years prior. And there were people living in the home. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, but there was drug dealing on the block. Um, lights were out. There was trash everywhere. Grass was up to your waist. And that was, that was um, the neighborhood that I, I purchased my home in. Um, and one of the things was, was come to that neighborhood and, and, and feel the pulse, feel what was needed and be a, 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 a resource to help get the resources into, or things into that area to help to revitalize it. Mm-hmm. And, and to make a long story short, I moved in, I parked my police cruiser out front that served as omnipresence in which people thought the police were always in the area. And you could slowly, slowly see things get better mm-hmm. to the point where we are now, where it was funny because even today, everyone was just outside washing the car. It was such a beautiful day, but mm-hmm. everyone was intermingling and talking and, and, and just, you know, being neighborly. And whereas those things didn't happen before on such a consistent basis, people pick up trash, people cut their grass at the same time mm-hmm. um, because yeah. we have pride in our neighborhood again. Mm-hmm. Um, every owner occupied home on our block has a surveillance camera. Those are some of the resources that I, that are because of grants that we received, such as from the, um, Canal Valley Council on Philanthropy allowed us to be able to do that. We created home safe and secure zones. Um, and so people feel safe. Um, one of the, another great story of, of success on my block is there was a host house that went up for sale. It was on the market for three days. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, one of the reasons why they moved here is because they said they love seeing that police car parked out in, in, in the street. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm going to brag right now because I'm going to tell you all right now, I have the be- best neighbors ever. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we are a very diverse group uh, of, of people, but, but we all have a common goal of, of having a, a neighborhood that's nurturing, that's great for raising kids, mm-hmm. safe, um, and and we take care of each other. That's awesome. That is awesome. So you you're certainly a community leader. When you think about leadership, like what are some of the skills, attitudes, behaviors that you had to learn or adopt to be such a good leader? Wow, um, that's almost scary. Um, what I'll say this. Um, what's big for me is me personally is I have to stay humble. Um, if I'm humble, I'm able to listen. Mm-hmm. And and people will tell you everything you, you need to know if you're able to listen. Mm-hmm. If you're able to listen. And one thing that I, I, that I do try to do with my role is I have access to certain resources. And as I listen to the different issues that are going on in the community, if I can connect some dots, then that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. 
And so that I think that's what has helped me be successful. Um, and, and, um, and, and here's the other thing as well. Sometimes people just need a little boost. Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, they're not just looking for handouts. They're not. Sometimes they just need a boost, right. a different perspective. And, and that's what has happened in my neighborhood. And that's why we're one big family in the 1500 block of Sixth Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Awesome. That's so as we wind down the conversation, you know, think back to when you first started your career. What do you know now that you wish you knew back then? Wow. Like what would you have done differently? Wow. Um, it, it, it's, I wish I could say I had, I, I had the emotional intelligence back then, but you're young and, <laughs> right, and, and right. you know, but one thing I do again, I, and I mentioned this earlier in, 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 in our talk was that I wish I had known what my levels of emotional intelligence were back then, mm-hmm. because I could have really worked on in the areas where I was deficient. And again, it just helps would have helped me to become even more effective at an earlier age and, um, and, and kind of avoid some of the pitfalls that, that I had gone into or experienced. Um, because of, of, of um, sometimes my own ignorance. But, um, but if I could have had um, uh, an, an awareness about my own emotional intelligence back then, mm-hmm. wow, what a difference. So that's why I'm so excited about these guys and gals coming out of the academy now with that baseline. That's awesome. Um, it's really going to help. And you, you're always such a positive person. I don't think I've ever heard you whine and complain about anything. So what what gives you hope? What 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 makes you so positive and so hopeful about about the future? Um, I, I'm gonna give you a story. Um, I work closely with corrections, and and um, just about a week and a half ago, I had lunch with a gentleman that actually came to Charleston to participate in in our program called the Grace Project in which they came down to work on homes um, mm-hmm. on the west side, actually on my block even. Okay. Um, yeah. work, you know, working on facade projects, kind of beautified painting and, and cutting brush and, and, and mm-hmm. painting fences. And, and so um, to see and to build a relationship and see guys and gals that are behind prison and have that perspective to be able to draw from, um, and then see them come out and be successful. My, that is, that is, mm-hmm. you cannot put a price on that. Right. And, and it's something that I really, really appreciate having ex- experienced. And so with that, that is something I'm going to move forward with from here on out mm-hmm. is to take that experience and, 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 and the community, the beloved community. I want to, I want to right. achieve that yeah. too. That's what I want us Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. That includes everybody. That includes so everyone. Yeah. Have to, so to sit across the table and have lunch with him once he was paroled, and 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 we we break bread together, mm. um, is 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 probably one of the most rewarding things ever to experience. You know, okay. considering what both of our backgrounds were. So exactly, exactly. Yeah, you're one police officer that's about kind of getting people back on the right track and not just, you know, locking them up and throwing away the key, but just 
figuring out how to, because most of them are coming back home, right? So it's going to be, you got to figure out. Them. That's right. Yeah, you've you've got to figure out how to, you know, weave them back into the community. So. Yeah. Not, and not for us to let our unconscious biases right. not allow them to change. That's right. That's right. So. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Errol. Appreciate you. And thank you for sharing on, on fostering solutions. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Endeavors. It's an honor. Thank you. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye.